take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Now listen to that again. I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. And it's made me think about the idea of Jesus taking hold of us and what that looks like in our journey of life. Jesus took hold of me, and I put my hand in his when I was almost 13. All my life, I had known about him. I had strong Catholic roots and a bit of catechism. Because of difficult circumstances, my once really observant family had split into many parts. And as the youngest, I was left with the vestiges. My older siblings started finding their way. And some of them began following Jesus. And when I had small, when I was small, one of them prayed for me. And I had an experience of the Lord's healing from a very bad illness. Looking back now, I see that Jesus, of course, was always there. That's always what we see. And he came to the forefront for me when I was about eight, when I started going to church with a friend. And I always cannot say enough about Those of us who are here who invite friends to come and to experience who Jesus is through worship or youth group or an event at church, because God is always working in the hearts of those in our lives who have yet to truly know him. Our invitation to them may be the thing which changes the path that they follow. Okay, public service announcement over. Except don't forget Easter's coming and dinner reminded you about the postcards. Anyway, our youth group was at a conference in Sacramento where honestly, literally two to 300 of us were running wild in this huge church facility. Doug's laughing. He knows he's been there. And we had gone on day trips and served the community and met for worship. And one night we were all seated on the floor. And really my memory is that we were in the dark somehow with candles. And there was this old guy preaching. And I I wish I could remember what he said. Or what scripture he was using. And all of a sudden he asked if anyone wanted to know Jesus. And walk with him. And I stood up. Before I even knew what I was doing. And I made a beeline for the altar. And it was a crossroads moment for me. And I thought to myself. I remember thinking. I want to follow Jesus. And Jesus grabbed hold of me. At a pivotal time. In my formation. And saved me. To give me a rich life. Instead of the one I could have created for myself. Jesus takes hold of you and of me so that we might know him. Jesus wants us to know him. He came to earth and went to great lengths and endured awful things. So that you and I might understand who he is. So that we might understand the kingdom of God. So that we might know him. Because we're invited into a deep intimate union with God that is never ending if we so choose. Following Jesus is not an academic activity or a good feel notion about love. It's an honest daily connection with the one who knows us best and loves us most and is always with us on the journey of life until we get to see him face to face. In the scripture that we read today, Paul is giving a strong warning to his friends at the Philippian church. These people are very close to his heart. Until now, the letter has been mostly gentle guidance and warm affirmation. 
In the beginning of chapter 3, you read it and you think, wow, he's like finishing up. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's like he's going to say goodbye to them. Some commentators think that he was having like a maybe a postscript kind of moment. Oh, I forgot one more thing. Some other think that this is like a different letter starting right here in verse 3. <clears throat> Whatever happened, all of a sudden he starts using really strong language about a group of people who might harm the church. And then he uses that as a springboard to reflect on his life and his testimony to help them. And then he gives us some of the most beautiful and important words in the New Testament. Words that we can go to again and again as we think about our walk with Jesus. So let us read today uh, Philippians I did turn it off. You're right. Okay, great. Because I thought that was the remote. It's not. All right. (laughs) Okay. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Do you see how it changes? For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen. The word of the Lord. Father, thank you that you are here. We need to hear from you, God, and so we ask for you to touch our lives in a way that only you can. We're listening. Amen. Paul here is afraid that the Philippian church might be influenced by a group of Jewish believers in Christ. These people were going around trying to convince churches to continue some of the core practices of their covenant relationship with God. 
namely here circumcision, while still embracing Christianity. The Philippian church, unlike Galatia, had not yet fallen prey to these people. And Paul wants to make sure that it stays that way. So he states his warning. And then he begins to talk about his life as a way to underscore any counterattack that might come from these people who might say, well, what do you know? You're a Christian. And Paul's like, oh, no, 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 my friends. I am Jewish. Because they might not know Paul's story. So he puts it down in writing for them so that there would be no dispute about what he's talking about. So Paul here gives a smattering of his past and his present and his future. A testimony of sorts to the Savior's work in his life. So today we're going to look for a few minutes and we're going to talk about what Paul didn't know, what Paul knows now, and what Paul hopes to know. So let's begin with what Paul did not know. In Acts, we have a record of a man named Stephen who was chosen to help serve the early church. As it grew so that no one was overlooked, specifically widows. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a leader and the Lord used him more and more to do miracles and to lead. And there arose opposition to his teaching. And charges were brought against him by a Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. And in that moment, you should read it if you haven't for a while. I read it again. It's quite powerful. He preached one of the most powerful sermons ever recorded. And as he is being stoned for his words, Paul, named Saul at the time, was there giving approval to his death. And as the spirit began to fall more rapidly on the believers and the gospel began to spread, Paul amped up his attempt to destroy what he believed was a rogue sect dragging believers to jail and threatening them with death if they did not stop. The words before us show us that Paul's whole life had led him to that point of defending the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with zeal. As he lists his credentials, we realize that he has had all the advantages a person of his station could have. His parents have a pure bloodline back to a very elite tribe of Israel. Clearly, they did all they could to help him achieve the highest station in Judaism. Most probably, he had all the right doors open for him. He himself had trained and studied and belonged to an elite group of Pharisees whose sole job in life was to keep every detail of God's law. He was a leader who used every bit of his energy to forward his beliefs. And what he knew to be true, he acted on vociferously. It's unclear what he knew about Jesus. But what we do know is that he didn't like what he knew about him. So he used his power in his station to oppress others, to keep them down from talking about Jesus or spreading the gospel with the hoped outcome that they would probably dissipate and go away. But that was not to be. There's something that is being used all over college campuses now called the privilege walk. A facilitator will have a group of students stand in a line in the middle of the room. And then they begin to ask questions to the participants. And they will either have the kids go forward or go back depending on the answers. For instance, they might say, if your ancestors came to the United States by force, take a step back. They might ask, if there were more than 50 books in your house growing up, take a step forward. 
If you were embarrassed about your clothes or your house while growing up, take a step back. If your family ever went on vacation, take a step forward. If you've been a victim of sexual harassment, take a step back. And the list goes on. When the list is done being read, everyone who, of course, started at the same place stops and looks around the room to see who now is at the front and who is at the back. And the point of the exercise, of course, is to show in a noticeable way those who were raised with obvious advantages and those whose upbringing make it, made it difficult, if not impossible, to move forward. It's not meant to embarrass anyone or make anyone feel guilty, although it does. Rather, it's to heighten the awareness in life that we don't really have a level playing field for everyone. So often those who are raised in privileged circumstances are unaware with what they have been given. Paul's description of his life makes me think that was probably true for him. His birthright, his culture, his status, his education, his connections made everything possible for him to go to the front of the line. He himself says, I have every confidence in the flesh, in the things that I've been given. I have every confidence to, to trust in the things that I could achieve here. And then he used that power to get what he wanted, to get rid of those who opposed him. Now, the language that Paul uses here is actually accounting language because he thought that his astounding qualifications made him invincible and his total conviction that he was in the right made his balance sheet look like he had an abundance of positives. But what Paul didn't know is that he was living in opposition to the God he thought he was serving. And so Jesus literally stops him in his tracks in the middle of a road and says, why are you persecuting me? And the experience of meeting Jesus showed Paul that he was actually completely bankrupt in God's economy and that he needed to make a huge system change if he really wanted to follow the Lord. His accumulation and striving didn't bring him joy or fulfillment. And it wasn't like all the things that Paul had achieved were wrong. It was that... Paul had given them all the glory and all the honor in his life. He had sunk his whole identity and character in them, needing to preserve them no matter the cost. So what was your life like before you knew Christ? In what ways did you put confidence in the flesh? Those things you believed were advantages to move you forward in this life, to get you the life that you wanted. How did Jesus meet you on the road and grab you for his purposes? Paul uses his testimony to help the church remember that we need to keep trusting Christ because those temptations to trust in what we can see and to trust in our advantages continue to plague us. Even after we know better, even after we know Jesus and he has been made real to us, Again, it isn't our achievements that are wrong, but when they become more important than God and cause us to do the wrong thing, then we need to be stopped. The second thing that we want to look at is what Paul now knows as he writes this. Everything he believed uh, that was important, he now considers as total loss. He says garbage that can be rendered dung. 
in the face of knowing Jesus as his Lord. That's a big deal to say for him because he had relinquished everything he once held to be vital. That had to be done for him if he was now going to embrace Jesus, the same Jesus he had been persecuting, because the grace he received in return changed his life. And as he writes this, his experience then is like ours today who have trusted Jesus. Jesus took hold of us so that we can live in righteousness, in power, and in suffering. So first Paul talks about righteousness and he says, the righteousness that I live in now comes from God's law and faith in Christ. He said, I find the ultimate value in knowing the person of Jesus, not in personal accomplishment. One commentator I read said that life in Christ is like taking the elevator, not the stairs. Because our holiness is not based on our work of trudging up the hill, but it's rather putting our faith in God's chosen conduit for salvation, his vehicle to get us up. We don't get into right relationship with the Lord by working for it. We get in and stay in by believing the truth and love of what Jesus offers. Faith is us giving up trying to save ourselves and allowing Jesus to make us right from the outside in. Second, Paul talks about the power of living in Christ's resurrection. And in Ephesians, he says... He prays that the people would be enlightened and that we would know the incomparable power available to us who believe, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. This Lent, one of the books that um, I have been looking at is a little book called Pauses for Lent. And every day there's a word that um, they want you to focus in on as you journey through Lent uh, that kind of goes along with the narrative. And then there are scripture verses. I want you to hear a few words from um, the word called resurrection. The resurrection means much for our lives today. Jesus is present with us as our loving friend. He is available to each one of us in our struggle with the forces of evil. We too can experience little Easter's in the midst of things that make us die each day. The betrayal of a friend, the cruelty of a colleague, or even the failure of a dream. Easter reminds us that the risen Christ is always able to bring light and life where there seems to be only darkness and death. What wonderful good news that is. When we trust Jesus, when we meet him face to face, we then live in the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Whenever we pray in Jesus' name for help, Whenever we ask Jesus to protect us from evil, whenever we ask Jesus for deliverance from addiction, whenever we ask Jesus for help or for guidance or for healing or for hope, that means that we are trusting in resurrection power. We pray in the name of Jesus all the time. Sometimes it becomes a little bit like, oh, in the name of Jesus. But we should always stop and thank the Lord. That we can pray for things in the name of Jesus. Because God provides in the name of Jesus. He heals and forgives and loves. He reconciles us to one another. He is at work even before we get to wherever it is we think we're going. Because Jesus has gone before us. It's not a disembodied, spiritual, mysterious thing. It is from the Lord found in the person of Jesus administered through the Holy Spirit. Third, uh, Paul talks about sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. 
Now, in our sermon study this week, we all agreed that this was not our favorite part of the passage. We wanted to kind of go over this because we want a good life without difficulty. But we all know that it is mostly in our deep pain and our struggle that God has made the most real to us. It is through our suffering that we have to rely on him most and depend on him. We learn lessons in suffering that we cannot learn in any other way. As Paul writes this, he is in jail. This is not the first of his imprisonments for the faith. He has become what he once persecuted. He is receiving what he himself once gave out in beatings and humiliation and people trying to close his mouth about Jesus. He understands now in a new way what it means to share in Christ's adversity. We also suffer. We have to face the darkness of living in a world that is full of pain and sorrow and death. And it weighs on our hearts. And we cry out to Jesus for relief and for help. It's interesting in some ways that the Lord suffered and then was raised. We're raised to new life and our life still includes suffering. But now when we experience pain and suffering, we do with great hope that Christ has overcome What Paul knew as he wrote this is that Jesus took hold of him so that he could live in righteousness and in resurrection power. And he could share in Christ's sufferings. Lastly, we want to talk about what Paul hopes to know. He says, I want to become like Christ in death and somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. He's not doubting Christ's resurrection here. He's simply not exactly sure when he's going to see it. Or how is it that he is going to get there? Isn't that true for all of us? We don't know exactly what the road is going to look like when we die. As we get to heaven, we wonder about it. Sometimes we worry about it. Somehow we will attain that. But he also says, I'm not going to obsess about the future, about the, about the past. I'm not going to obsess about my sin and the things that caused me harm. I'm also not going to glory in the ministry that I've done for Jesus and keep looking that way. I'm going to look forward. My eyes are on the future. And the imagery here is so good. He said, I'm pressing toward the goal. I'm straining with all I am and all I have to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Sometimes I know I don't have this attitude quite enough. Because we get bogged down here with the things that we want or our pain or the hassles that happen. This life can take hold of us and we can begin to be lulled into acting like this is all there is. But Paul's words remind us here, keep looking forward. Keep looking at the finish line. Keep looking at who is waiting for you at the end. Did you ever run a race and get cheered on to the finish by someone who loves you? You're exhausted and you're tired and you don't know if you're going to make it to the end, but someone's there maybe with pom-poms or maybe a sign and they're like, hey, you can do it. I love you. And you're like, yes, I can. Whoops. And so you start really going because even though you've been tired, you know, this person's watching you and they're cheering for you and they know that you can do it. That's what Jesus is doing for you and for me. We can run with urgency to the end of the finish line because he's going to be there running with us and getting there. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
that continues to ring in our ears as we finish up the passage today. One of the things that we need to consider as we look at this is how. How has Christ taken hold of you? That is part of your testimony. That is part of what he wants you to tell other people. And the other important question for us to think about is why? Why did Jesus take hold of you? He took hold of you so that you could know him. He took hold of you so that you could live in resurrection power. He took hold of you so that you could have fellowship with him, so that you could know that you have someone waiting for you. But what is it that God is using you for? Paul says, I want to grab onto that which Jesus has grabbed onto me for. Paul knows his ministry. Paul's very clear that he was saved from something awful so that he could do something great for the Lord, so that he could do a 180. But what has the Lord saved you for? What are you doing? What are you grabbing onto in this life so that Christ might be made known to those around you? What is it that you press on to do that God has uniquely gifted you and saved you to do? As we live out our life with him, may we do so walking closely beside him in real trust of his spirit, and the life that we have with him eternally. Let us pray.